wow. <laughs> this, this is like a little taste of heaven to me. A little, little microcosm of it. <laughs> Celebrating Miss Christine. I, I just imagine whenever we get to heaven, that, that reception of a standing ovation. <laughs> we get there and all of heaven is celebrating. It's going to be beautiful. Good morning, family. So great to be with you all this morning. If you're a visitor, thank you so much for joining us. If you have questions about anything involving this church, please feel free to ask them. We would love to fill you in on how you can get plugged in and learn more about this wonderful church family. You saw a little snippet of the family portion today. We're talking about a really important thing today. Today, we live in a culture of condemnation. We love making ourselves the experts on a certain matter, whether that's religious or political or otherwise. And we love pointing our finger at the other side, antagonizing the other side, talking bad about them either in person or on social media. We make our identity out to be the things that we are against. That's what we define ourselves by. We love to jump on the mistakes of other people to try to deplatform them or cancel them. And sometimes I think we enjoy playing the game of, yeah, but you can't be a Christian and whatever you want to fill in that blank with. We love condemnation. And oftentimes we really love condemning ourselves. We shame ourselves, think that we're not worthy of things. We talk really evilly about ourselves. We can be our biggest judge or critic. And maybe that root comes from an upbringing with our parents. Maybe that comes from a harsh word that's been spoken to us by a peer. But really, I think a lot of it comes down to what we believe about God. But whenever we really see the heart of God, the arrows of condemnation should snap. This morning, we're talking about one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. In my opinion, it is a top three chapter because really it is theology 101. This is the heart of God, as clear as you can see it. This is the lens in which I understand God, and I would argue this is the lens in which Jesus understands the Father. So I'm not gonna waste any more time because any words that I could come up with do not do a justice to the story that's already here. So go ahead, if you would, turn with me to Luke 15. This is the context. In this context, there is a large crowd that's gathering around Jesus, and it's getting bigger. And we read in verse 1, the Pharisees have a problem with this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees were angry that Jesus would welcome these individuals. I guess they didn't like tax day too much either. But these religious leaders wanted Jesus to do nothing with these people. Why? Why is that such a big deal? We're going to talk more about tax collectors next week, but today, just for a quick summary, they were seen as some of the worst of sinners. They were getting snugly with the Roman Empire. They were kind of traitors to their own kind. And they could charge really whatever they wanted for the people that were under them. So they could really take advantage of people. So the thought of all these tax collectors and sinners 
the deplorables, and the, the key word there is all, all of them were gathering around Jesus, and the Pharisees hated it. They didn't like seeing a Jewish rabbi associating himself with these people because they had already condemned them in their hearts. How dare he spend time with the evil and unclean? And then Jesus gets into absolutely masterful teaching in Luke 15. And this is, I think, primarily directed to the Pharisees, but really there is so much depth and richness in these stories for all of us. And this is Jesus saying, you want to know what my Abba is like? You want to know my Father? This is his heart. So the first two stories, I'm not going to get into them really today because I want to get to the final story. But it's the parable of the lost sheep first, and then it's the parable of the lost coin, and both of them are basically saying the same thing. Heaven throws a party when a sinner comes back to God. And they are very, very powerful and beautiful stories. But after these stories, we get to the story, the parable of parables, the story of the lost son, or depending on who you talk to, the prodigal son, or the parable of the self-righteous son, or the parable of the running father. There's a lot of different names for this parable, but regardless of what you want to call it, this story has gone on to change so many people's lives. It has inspired so many artists, musicians, to create really masterful pieces. And I know this is a really familiar story for a lot of us, so I'm gonna challenge you guys to try to listen to this with fresh ears today. Try to listen to this like it's the first time that you've heard it because it is immensely powerful and our world today needs to hear this story. So let's dig in. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So we see from the beginning, he is asking for his inheritance right now. And maybe in our culture today, we may not see that as that big of a deal. Maybe it's like, hey, I want to invest in it, invest this money, make a little bit more money off of it, something like that. But in this culture, this was an incredibly dishonoring thing to do because one's land, one's possessions was kind of tied into the family identity. So what this younger son is doing is basically asking for the father to tear apart his standing in the community. It was an incredibly shaming thing to even ask. He's saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my money right now. He wanted the father's wealth, what the father could do for him, but he didn't want the father. And then here's what's crazy. I think in a lot of cultures, they're gonna stop right here because it says, so he divided his property between them. The father grants this request. In most cultures, it'd be like, no way, the father should punish the child for even saying something so audacious. There's no way that you would just do this. But that's what the father does. He divides the property and gives his share of the inheritance. Even though what the son was going to do was going to be against the father's will, even that request was against the father's will, the father gives him the freedom to do this, even if it was going to be de detrimental to him. And then in verse 13 it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. So with this new freedom, the younger son lived it up. There was no luxury he didn't buy. There was no pleasure he said no to. Later we read that 
he ended up sleeping with a lot of prostitutes, for example. He ultimately wasted everything his father had given him with his lifestyle. He ran out of funds to support the way that he wanted to live. And then in verse 14, it says, after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So whenever you think things can't get much worse, boom, there's a famine. And he can't even provide for his own basic needs anymore. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So that might be a really nasty image for us, but in a Jewish world, that is like the winner of the unclean Olympics, right? To feed pigs being your job, and then specifically to want the food that they're snacking on, that's nasty, right? And so he gets to this point, like I would like to call rock bottom. And he is staring at this food, wanting to eat it, and it gives him time to think and maybe ask that question like we talked about last week. How did I get here? How did I get to this point where I'm wanting to eat pig slop? And it's oftentimes not until we get to that place that we ask this question. But in this moment of crisis, whenever he feels like there is nowhere else to go, the younger son, like we often do, decides he's going to go back to the father. So in verse 17, when he came to his senses, the senses of, I don't want to eat that stuff, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. He knows at the very least, if he goes back and works for his father, he knows there's bread to spare in his house. He knows he can at least have his basic needs provided. So here is his response that he works up. In verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I am no longer worthy. I am not worthy. He goes immediately to a place of shame. He thinks about the damage that he's done, the bridges he's burned, the dishonor that he has put on his family. And whenever we make mistakes, we often attack ourselves as well. I'm a total failure. I can't do anything right. I'm a mistake. I'm worthless. These are all narratives we can believe about ourselves. And to be clear, I think godly remorse for our sin is a good thing. We shouldn't feel great about our own sin. But whenever we strap that to our identity, that's when shame starts to creep in. And it's one of the devil's favorite tools. But what's interesting is he says he wants to do, he wants to be one of his father's hired servants. In other words, he's not even thinking, it's not even on the table for him to be a son again. He's saying, maybe I can at least repay the debt if I start working for him. Maybe I can pay it back to him, because I'm definitely not worth being reinstated into this family. So then in verse 20, it says, so he got up and went to his father. He took that first step, and that first step is oftentimes the hardest He takes that first step to go back. Then we read the best line in this story. We read the father's reaction. And if you're a father, or maybe you're thinking of your own parents, think about what your parents' reaction may have been to something like this. Imagine you did something terribly, terribly wrong and shaming and embarrassing to your parent. And they're sitting outside looking out the window, and you're about to walk in, I imagine some of you might expect your parent to be like, oh, this better be good, right? That's kind of the response 
that we might expect, but not with this father. But while he was still a long way off, I imagine this modern day image of the father sitting on the front porch, rocking on a rocking chair, looking over the horizon, just his face is always turned to that spot where, the, where his son might at some point come over that hill, always looking that way. His father saw him. Stop in here for a second. The Greek word here, yes, it literally can mean seeing somebody, but it also has to do with one's perception, with understanding, with knowing someone. So the father sees him and understands why the son is coming back. And he was filled with compassion for him. So the Greek word for compassion is splagizomai. Let me hear you say splagizomai. That's what I thought. Um, this means to be moved to one's bowels. And you might be like, what does that have to do with compassion? Great question. In the ancient times, it was thought that your bowels is kind of the residing place of where pity for someone else was or, or deep love. So the father has this deep well of love for the son, and it is just bursting out of him. So much so, <laughs> and this line is crazy. It doesn't seem like it, but it is. He ran to his son. Much like the shepherd that runs after the lost sheep. You have to understand in Jewish culture, a patriarch of a family, an elderly person does not run. That is not what they do. It's a very slow culture. It is, you are way too dignified to do that. That's for kids. Kids like to run. If you're the patriarch, you don't do that. But this father is so filled with compassion that he says, whatever about what's dignified. <laughs> and he runs to the son. He doesn't even let the son get back into the house whenever he might be tapping his foot, ready to lay into him whenever he comes in. No, he sees him and he's gone. Sprints to him. <laughs> and then we read this. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. Before even hearing about what happened, what was going on with the son, before hearing his apology and request, the father accepts his return and embraces him and kisses him. That same familial love, as if whenever he was still in the house, he shows again, even though he squandered everything. Because what's true here is the father's love for him never wavered. He loves his son for who he is, not what he has done. And then we get the son's response, the thing that he was rehearsing on the way there that he was gonna nail whenever he gets in front of the father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There's that shame again. And I think a lot of us feel that way with our relationship with God. I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of your sacrifice. But the father doesn't even let him finish his request. He cuts him off. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. In other words, give him all the best clothes that we possibly have. And what's fascinating is the ring in this. It's most likely that the ring that was given was a family signet ring. It had the seal of the family on it. So while, <laughs> while the son was about to ask to be a 
a hired servant so he could pay back the debt he owed to his father and not be reinstated as a son. The father's like, I'm not gonna let you try to pay me back. I'm gonna bring you back by sheer grace. And he brings him back, reinstates him as a son in the family. And then in verse 23, it says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Whenever we might expect the father to do otherwise, he throws a party for his son. He kills the fattened calf, which was only supposed to be done for special festivals, and this is something that you bring the whole neighborhood in for. So he likely invited all of the neighbors, everybody around, hey, come in, celebrate me, celebrate with me. This is a special day for the father. This is one of the best days of the father's life. And he throws a party, not because of the things that the son has done or what he deserves, but because relationship has been restored. And I think it's worth noting that in many places in scripture, whenever it refers to heaven, it is a party. It is a banquet. It is a celebratory, beautiful thing. I grew up and I thought it was just gonna be a boring church service forever. It's gonna be so much richer than that. And I can't wait to see what it's like. And then we see the rationale for this party in verse 24, for the son of mine was dead, dead in his trespasses, dead in the family, but is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. This is a spot that a lot of people like to stop. And understandably so, it is one of the most powerful sections of scripture ever. <laughs> it's so beautiful. I mean, can you believe the kindness of God? But the original audience, whenever they heard this, they weren't wiping away tears because of God's beauty. They were angry. They were angry at Jesus for saying this. Because what they were doing, what Jesus was doing specifically to them, he was sort of deconstructing and reconstructing their view of God right before them. And they didn't like that picture of God. But this next part of the story is so crucial for us to hear as well. In verse 25 it says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him safe and sound. Has him back safe and sound. What that means is the wholeness of relationship is fully restored, everything is good. And then in verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the older son sees this party and he is stewing in anger. He is willingly keeping himself out of this party. He could easily step in and join, but because of his own self-righteousness, because of his own judgmental anger, he decides he wants to stew in self-pity outside. And that is keeping him from the father. And by him not being willing to join, this is his time now to disgrace the family. I will not be a part of this. He better not come and take some of my inheritance after blowing all of his. He's not my brother anymore. And then we read another one of the most profound lines of this. So his father went out and pleaded with him. While the father is in there having a party for the son. 
He doesn't just sit in there because he knows another son is away from him again. He has another lost son. So he goes out of the house and pursues the other lost son. The son with a different kind of sin sickness. One of self-righteousness. Because you see, this son, like the brother, he wanted the good things of the father. He wanted the status of the father, but really in the end didn't want the father. And what's cool, if you look at Luke 15 and, and you start looking at the math of God, it's really beautiful. Parable of the lost sheep. 99 sheep are safe with the shepherd. But 99% isn't good enough for the shepherd. He runs and chases down that one lost sheep. Same thing with the coins. He has, she has nine other coins in this story. And then she finds that one lost coin and rejoices. It's the same thing with this. One of two children runs away and squanders everything. And as the son is visible again, the father runs to that one lost son. And then once again, whenever it's one of one, when everybody else is in the party having a good time, but there's that one that's outside, the father doesn't say that's good enough. He goes to the one that is outside. <laughs> and this brings up one of the most beautiful points about God. We see this God that is not satisfied. If every person on the planet was in relationship with him and you weren't, how can we even begin to quantify or measure the love that God has for us? It is completely unfathomable. But then we see the older brother's response to the father's pleading. He answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving. That word is not lost on Jewish ears. Thinking about the time in Exodus, right? I have been working, I have been working, and you have done nothing for me. I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother anymore, this son of yours, whenever he comes back, the one who has squandered your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. He doesn't care if this is the greatest day for the father. He refuses to be a part of it. Even though the older brother is gonna end up getting his inheritance, it's not enough for the older brother. And I think many of us may relate more to this lost son than the younger one. In serving God faithfully, we can get angry whenever it seems like the wicked prosper. Whenever my enemies are getting the things that I'm wanting. And I feel like you're doing nothing for me, even though I have been faithful, I have been obedient to you. But this person that spits in your face gets a party? That's not fair. The son was, in this story was clearly the Pharisees. They have been the faithful ones and they see Jesus as one who welcomes sinners with open arms and even tax collectors, but they're met with a lot of rebuke from Jesus? No way, that's not right. And then we read the father's final words. My son, even though you don't want to be a part of this family, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, literally now with the inheritance. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father wants the older brother to celebrate. The father wants the son to join the party because his brother is back, but the older brother is angry and envious and the story just ends. We don't see what happens with the older brother. And I think that may be intentional for the Pharisees to think about how they may respond in this situation. But what this parable is, is the epitome of the upside down kingdom. Because can you imagine the irony of this? The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the one who follows and keeps the commandments of God is lost? That is shocking. Because the problem is the older brother sees God as a boss, as a provider, as a giver, but he doesn't see God as savior. How might you respond to this story? Is there a character that maybe you resonate with more? Are you more like the younger brother, that you feel like you've run away and squandered everything, but you wanted your inheritance, you wanted to do the things you wanted because you thought that was gonna bring you true joy and happiness in life? And then at one point or another, maybe, by the grace of God, before you hit rock bottom or maybe whenever you hit rock bottom, you realize, I need Jesus. I need God. And you decide to come back to him even though you feel like you are not worthy. Maybe some of you feel more like the older brother. Someone that really feels like I want the good things that God can give. I want that control as well, but you go about it in a different way. It's not by a means of rebellion. It's by obedience. And because you're obeying, you expect God to give you all the good things that you've ever wanted. Because you really ultimately believe that you are worthy of all of that good. But what we have here is two sides of the same coin. The world really likes to operate with the understanding that the good are saved and the bad are lost. But what Jesus is saying is both are lost. They may look different, but they have the same cracks at the core. You can miss the Father with either kind of lostness. There is so much that Luke 15 teaches us, isn't there? It is a powerful, powerful chapter, but I think there are three things that we really need to take away from this text. The first one is that sin is still sin. Sin is something that makes us want to flee from the Father. And the Father doesn't want it. It's something that hurts the Father because it hurts us. Because it's something detrimental to our own lives. So we have to realize, not make the mistake of the older brother, we have to realize that we have sinned. And we have damaged God's good world. And secondly, and this is way more important than the first one, no matter who you are, no matter the things that you've done in your life, no matter the bridges that you've burned, no matter the relationships that you've ruined, no matter the shame that you've brought to other people or your family, hear this. If you come home to your father, you're not gonna be repaying anything. You're not gonna be a hired hand because the father has restored you as his child. You are reinstated as a family member. You have the full rights as a child of God. You share in the love and the power of the triune God. Your identity is not that you are a sinner anymore. You are a saint. There is nowhere in the New Testament where someone after coming 
to the transformative love of Jesus, they call themselves a sinner. They are a new identity. They are a new creation in Christ. You are not a sinner anymore. That's who you were. In Christ, you are a new creation. You are loved. You are worthy. You are accepted, and you belong in this family, and do not let anybody tell you otherwise. Third, we have to avoid the pitfall of the older brother. We should never condemn those that God welcomes. There's a reason that God is the judge and says vengeance is his, a.k.a. not ours, because he has perfect knowledge to make the perfect judgments. We do not. So be careful ever patting yourself on the back for doing all the right things while looking down on other people who do differently than you and think differently than you. Yes, we can call sin, sin, but we can never judge somebody in a condemning way. That is not our place. We can make judgments of discernment, but we cannot condemn. So we need to get rid of that cancerous unforgiveness that's deep in our hearts. And in this, I take Jesus really seriously whenever he says, the same measure you use will be measured unto you. And I want to be a part of heaven's party. I don't want to be stewing in self-pity outside. So this morning, as we close, I would say, come to the Father. But the truth is, your truest Father has been pursuing you from the very beginning. I want to invite all of our shepherds to go ahead and make their way around the room. This morning, if you don't feel like you are worthy, if you feel like you've made big mistakes and there's no way coming back, there's no way a God can love me, there's no way I'm going to be accepted into a community, get rid of that today. Confess that. Because the truth is, God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. There is nothing you can do to make God not want you. God's heart is for you. God loves you. You are worthy. Worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. Worthy to be raised again in the new life and worthy of the homecoming that is to come. So if you have any needs, if you have any prayers, if you want to give your life over to Jesus today, I'm going to invite you to go and talk to any of these people that are lined up around the room, and they would love to pray over you. And you can do that whenever we sing the next song. Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God that loves to save the lost, a God whose heart is always turned towards us, a God that loves us even though we've squandered the gifts and the time that you have given us. I pray that you help us to see that kindness, to see that grace, and help that lead us to repentance. Help us to continually keep turning to you. However many times we end up running away, how many times we end up being the prodigal that gets away from you. I pray that you always help us to turn back to you. And we, thank, we are thankful that you are a God that is continually pursuing us, even though we may turn our backs on you. And Lord, help us get rid of that unforgiveness in our heart. Help us to celebrate others' wins. Help us to celebrate the good in other people's lives that you have given them. Help us not to be envious. 
And we thank you so much that we can even call you Father. That we have that closeness of relationship with you. And that that is how you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you so much for your grace and your love that is completely undeserved on our part. And we thank you that you have made us worthy, worthy of that love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.